This is a GRDC podcast. DNA technology is allowing for a massive advance in understanding pests and how they build chemical resistance. Hello, I'm Tony Crowley. In this podcast, Laureate Professor Ari Hoffman, who leads the Pest and Environmental Adaption Research Group in the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne, tells how DNA technology is being used to understand one of the grains industry's biggest pests, the tiny red-legged earth mite. Dean Alan Craig asked Professor Hoffman to set the scene by first describing the importance of this pest and its spread throughout the nation's grain belt. Yeah, the red-legged earth mite is still one of our major pests in Australia, uh, particularly in the grains industry. It attacks a range of crops. It's one of these generalist mites um, that can attack a range of plants. It's particularly destructive on canola, and it can lead to situations where a canola crop has to be re-sown as a consequence of seedling damage. So it's a major pest. It attacks a range of plants, um, and it continues to be a major problem, partly because it has such incredibly high densities um, that it can occur at. And those densities include figures up to 10,000 per square metre. And how far and wide is it spread across Australia? Yeah, so the red-legged earth mite is a problem across all um, southern Australia. There is evidence that it's currently spreading its distribution as well. Um, certainly it hasn't been so much of a problem in mid and north New South Wales, but there's evidence now that it's actually spreading into that region as well. And it's also spreading inland. Um, it looks like the red-legged earth mite is adapting to local conditions, and hence it seems to be spreading its distribution. Has it become resistant to sprays, pesticides, over the years? Yes, yeah, so the red-legged earth mite, of course, is controlled by pesticides, particularly organophosphates and pyrethroids traditionally. And there is evidence that it is becoming resistant to both of those um, major classes of chemicals. The first evidence of tolerance in earth mites uh, was discovered in 1997, which was some work that we did um, a long time ago. And that was the first time we really showed some tolerance to organophosphates. And because the mites occur at incredibly large population sizes, evolution um, of resistance should be quite effective. So at the time, I remember that we predicted that resistance would become common, and that certainly seems to be the case now. It's now evolved resistance to pyrethroids, very high levels of resistance such that those chemicals are no longer effective in places where you do get resistance. And there's also more recent evidence that it's evolving resistance to organophosphates now. So yeah, resistance is becoming a problem in this mite. It's a sexually reproducing species, which means it's very effective at evolution, and um, as expected, resistance has evolved. The question then always remains, doesn't it? How is this resistance spreading? Uh, a one group of mites becoming resistant and then travelling somehow across the country, perhaps uh, in soil or machinery or, or fodder, or are different mites developing their own resistance in their own corners of the paddock? Has your research revealed anything new in this area? So what our research, our recent research is showing is that resistance evolves locally. It's not like you're getting resistance in one part of the country that is then spreading to another part of the country. So it looks like um, resistance occurs as a consequence of local selection pressures and then builds up in a particular place, but it then doesn't spread to other parts of the country particularly quickly. That's really our key finding from the latest research. 
Now, that means that, of course, from a control point of view, if you do get resistance in one place and you manage to not have the resistance increasing, then it's not inevitable that you're going to get resistance in other places. It becomes very, very important to then treat that resistance situation locally. How significant a finding is this? Because controlling that resistance in the red-legged earth mites is, is critical, isn't it? Because this is a, this is a multi-million dollar problem here in Australia. Yeah, so the mites are a major problem, they're a major pest. You know, you're talking about tens of millions of dollars, so it's definitely substantial. And of course, if we can minimise the evolution of resistance, it means that we can make sure that the chemicals that are effectively, that are effective in controlling this mite can last longer. So if you can keep the resistance localised, if you can keep it from spreading far and wide, if you can keep it on a particular farm as opposed to many other farms, even if you can keep it in one corner of the farm, that means you're going to extend the life of your chemical products. And of course these chemical products have served the industry very well over a large number of years. You know, pyrethroids and agophosphates are cheap to apply when the margins are tight, so they're a very effective solution. And you want to try and keep those in the system as long as possible. So if there's too, too much resistance and it becomes widespread, then of course those chemicals effectively become useless and there's no point applying them because you simply won't control your mites. So that's the situation we face. Very important to keep them localised if we can. Um, and that's what we're all about. The fact that you've identified locally evolving resistance as opposed to resistance spreading across the country geographically, how does that impact on those at the, at the coalface, those who are actually growing grain, spraying their crops? What does this mean for them? Yes, yeah, so for the grain growers, what it means, you know, the fact that resistance is local, what it means is that it, it can be managed locally. We currently have a resistance management strategy in place that involves rotating chemicals, rotating actors, and that of course has the purpose of reducing selection pressures for particular chemicals. If you reduce selection pressures, then the resistance genes won't build up as quickly in your population. That hopefully keeps them at low levels. And that means that you can keep applying your chemicals um, for as long as possible because resistance is not a problem. So what we're trying to do here is to say, look, you know, the fact that resistance develops locally is a good news story from a resistance management point of view. It means that the management um, practices that we have in place to try and reduce the level of evolution of resistance should be effective. Because of course if it spreads rapidly, then um, what happens in one place is going to affect what happens in the other place. Whereas if it's local, it means that you can actually reduce the selection pressures in a particular place and that means, of course, that it's not inevitable that resistance will actually develop on your farm. And if you know, it does develop on one part of your farm, it doesn't mean it's going to spread very quickly to other parts of your farm. So when you say it's developed locally, you're not just talking about within a region or within a state. You could actually be talking about within a farm. Yeah, it, that's right. Yeah. So, sorry, so resistance can actually develop within a farm and, you know, it will spread around, but it could spread quite slowly and of course in an adjacent farm you know it may spread to that farm if the, you know, there is some movement of the mites of course but it's not inevitable if, the, if selection pressures stay low it's not inevitable that it's going to spread throughout an entire region that process seems to be potentially quite slow as long as the selection pressure is not there 
I've read that you highlight the need to manage fence lines in conjunction with spraying patterns and techniques. What is the significance of the fence line on a farm and the eradication of these pests? Yeah, so when, when, you're, managing, when you're managing resistance on a particular farm, you know, it's very important to think about where you apply your pesticide. So we've got situations, of course, where there might be a fence line, there might be a roadway where there's not much pesticide going on. And those regions can actually form a reservoir for res of susceptible individuals, of individuals that remain susceptible to that particular So they're chemical. not developing a resistance in that particular corridor? So in that corridor, if there's no spraying going on, they will not develop resistance necessarily. And that's one of the advantages of having this very localised development of resistance. It's not inevitable. We've, got situ we've seen situations along fence lines and along roadways where resistance seems to be quite stable. It's not spreading like crazy around the place. But of course, if you start spraying, then you're going to impose the selection pressures and then you are going to get the resistance spreading. So if you want to maintain a reservoir of susceptibility, then it may be possible to do that locally. It's a pretty significant finding, isn't it? Because there is already advice out there on managing uh, these pests and, and trying to reduce the resistance spread. But knowing that it's a locally developing issue, they're, they're evolving resistance in local pockets. That, that's scientific rigour, isn't it? which goes behind the general advice on management. Yeah, so through this, this new technology that we've applied to this pest for the first time, we've really you know, got a very rigorous protocol for showing that resistance in one place is evolving independently. You know, we can look at mites that are related to one another and it's not like we're seeing resistance in one place being related to resistance in another place which of course is the expectation if you see these resistance alleles moving around over large distances. Are you actually examining their DNA? I mean, how are you telling the difference between one And they're very small, aren't they? They're like a pinhead. So, so effectively what we're doing is we're fingerprinting, you know, DNA fingerprinting these mites. So what we have is a situation where we have markers called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and we have thousands and thousands of these that are scattered throughout the entire genome of the mite species. And that's how we can get a very, very accurate picture of mite movements and mite relatedness. And that gives us confidence in terms of being able to say that resistance in one place is unrelated to resistance in another place. Because if it was, if these genes were moving very quickly around the place, then we would see the resistance of mites being related to each other. And that's not what we're seeing. So it's a wonderful technique we can use these days. We can apply it to any pest, and this is what we're starting to do. This is all new technology. It just allows us to really map these movements of these pests in much greater detail than what we have been able to do previously. In pest control, how significant a step forward is this? Area? Look, I, I, I think it's a massive. I think it's a massive jump um, in terms of understanding pests. It's almost like you can read the biology of the pests, things that are hard to prove previously in their DNA because you can track these phenomena like migration, population size, all sorts of other things like that in their DNA. And of course, a lot of the time, the DNA technology also gives us the markers for assessing resistance. So in the, in the case of the red-legged earth mite, you know, we have a specific marker that actually controls resistance, which we read in the DNA. 
So in the old days, of course, we used to have to do a, a test, a bioassay, we call it, right? So you basically take a sample of mites, you spray the mites with a pesticide, you look at how many die, but these days we can actually read that sort of stuff in the DNA. And of course, you know, as we become better at it, we will be able to read more and more complex instances of resistance in their DNA. So for pyrethroids, we have a good signature in the DNA. For organophosphates, we don't. But in the future, we will be able to get an accurate picture of the organophosphates as well. So the research continues in that direction. Oh, the, re the research continues very much in this direction. What we'd like to do, of course, ultimately, is to actually have the genetic signatures of resistance for all our major grains pests, and that's where we're heading. And, um, and that means that you, know, you actually monitor the DNA to get a big picture of the, um, of the resistance uh, uh, status of pests across the grain belt. So investment in this sort of research, GRDC and, and other bodies, it's, it's critical, isn't it, uh, to the future? As you said, it's a ten, tens of millions of dollars of, of damage being done. Yes, yeah, so GIDC is investing in this research now. You know, they appreciate the potential it has, and they are certainly interested in developing rapid ways of diagnosing resistance. I mean, ideally, of course, you diagnose resistance before it even occurs. So if you know what genes are going to be important, then potentially you could actually start screening before it happens. And that, of course, is the ultimate success story, right? Where you can say, hey, we've got a problem emerging, it's going to happen soon, let's quickly do something about it, and let's make sure it doesn't actually happen. So, you know, so these types of actions um, that really act to warn growers and warn advisors that there's a problem on the horizon could be usually successful in terms of these things not developing at all. And that's, just not, that's not just talking about red-legged earth mites, it's talking about aphid pests, it's talking about diamondback moth and other pests. You know, I see this as being very much the future where we can predict things before they happen and we can read them very accurately by simply collecting samples and reading their DNA. If you had one message to give directly to grain growers around the country now that you've made this significant discovery, what would that be? So if I had a message, a single message to grain growers, I'd be saying please follow the resistance management strategy as it's currently developed. I mean, this, this will continue to be developed as we acquire new knowledge at the moment, this is our best guess in terms of how things happen. You know, we have added this information that we've collected now about movement of these mites and resistance genes into the resistance management strategy. If you follow it, we potentially are going to delay the spread of pyrethroid resistance, the spread of organophosphate resistance, and that means that hopefully for large parts of the grain belts, um, we can continue to use these chemicals effectively into the future. And of course, that doesn't apply to only these chemicals, but also other chemicals, um, such as neonicotinoids and other seed treatments that we are very reliant on currently. Professor Ari Hoffman, talking to Dean Alan Craig. And growers and advisors can download a copy of the Red-Legged Earth Mite Resistance Management Strategy from GRDC's website. Just search Resistance Management Strategy. I'm Tony Crowley and you've been listening to a GRDC podcast. <laughs>